Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Bill Mitchell. Bill Mitchell is well known for being one of the key persons in the modern monetary theory, which I believe you have coined the term. Is that right, Bill? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, That's true. That's true. When when did you do that? Uh, Look, for a long time, we we first got together a couple of us, an American banker and myself, and then we were joined by an American academic in the mid-90s. And for a long time, we just sort of called it modern money and uh, things like that. It was fairly loose as we were developing the core body of work. And then during the global financial crisis, I just called it one day modern monetary theory. And MMT seemed to stick. And the ideas didn't change, of course, but the, the, everyone now knows it as MMT. And I think over the years, it has gained more and more popularity, especially in recent years. What have you been up to lately outside of your responsibilities academically? Initially, a lot of uh, communities and uh, activist groups were interested in our, in our work. So we started the project in the mid-90s and uh, we started off going to conferences and doing the normal academic thing, presenting papers. And then that that really was coming up against massive resistance. And so then in 2004, I started a blog. And I said to Randy Ray and Warren Mosler, who were my partners in crime, in inverted commas, I'm going to start a blog And uh, because I'd been to a seminar at the university on developing modes of social media and all of this, and no one knew anything about blogs. And Warren and Randy said to me, you're mad, more or less. What is it? They didn't have a clue. And I said, this was the way we're going to take this to a broader audience outside the academic world. And as a consequence, it grew in popularity among community-type people who were interested in making changes to public policy, which they saw as being as entrenching uh, unemployment as... Uh, entrenching increased inequality and not even producing strong growth rates or strong productivity growth and or, or wages growth. So it wasn't just sort of the bleeding heart concerns. It was, you know, the, the core of economics. We weren't, we were, we were delivering economic outcomes that were increasingly inferior. And then over time, it's very interesting. So I'm talking to you, you're in the financial community more and more practitioners and uh, key stakeholders in the financial markets are 
are coming to our work because they've realised that the way in which policy parameters have been pushed, so down to negative interest rates, austerity in public spending has killed off a lot of public investment, infrastructure investment opportunities, which have typically been bread and butter investments for the financial communities seeking, you know, reasonable return but safe type returns. Uh, Negative interest rates have, have absolutely undermined the viability of a lot of uh, pension funds and um, insurance funds because they've got longer-term commitments, cash commitments, and they're increasingly not earning very much on their asset structures. So they're getting increasingly pushed into riskier positions. So maturity mismatch, that sort of argument. And so I've been dealing with those sort of calls for seminars, workshops, uh, op-eds, contributions to books. It's quite incredible how strong the demand for the thirst for the to hear it from the originators is. There's a lot of noise out there from people who think they know what MMT is and there's a lot of opinions and a lot of critical analysis, most of which misses the mark completely. And so I've just been dealing with all of that. Yeah. And we've been in some unusual economic circumstances for quite some time, but now with the pandemic, it's uh, almost one step up with the lockdowns affecting uh, economies around the world. And we recently had some uh, pretty dire numbers for the Australian economy. Um, We had a contraction of of 7%, and I think you, you wrote on your blog that the economy in Australia has collapsed. Could we have prevented that? Uh, Well, I mean, collapsed was the emotional word. That's sort of the headline. But, I mean, in terms of historical shifts in economic outcomes, 7% is unprecedented. That's a massive contraction. Now, uh, we have had contractions driven, say, in the the 80s, we had quite a substantial rewriting down of of our... Uh, GDP in a couple of quarters in around 1987. That was due to export prices uh, falling dramatically. So the value of our output was revised, but that that swings and was relatively quick. But 7% driven by lack of production, driven by people not being able to go to their work, driven by the health concerns, Uh, was unprecedented. So that's the context of collapse. Could have it been prevented? Well, most of it could have been prevented. And um, what I mean by that is that GDP is just a measure of spending in the economy and spending equals output equals income produced. That's just basic macroeconomics. And uh, so the question is, when private spending is in massive retreat, and what we saw in those same figures last week was household saving has, has uh, gone up to 21% of disposable income uh, from about 5 or 4%. So been, and consumption spending has fallen off a cliff, as they say, which is just the, the obverse of the saving ratio rising so quickly. So that's a reflection both of fear, but also of just a lack of ability to spend. Cafes are closed, so you're not going out to dinner anymore. Theatres, sporting events, you, you name it, everything we spend our money on, a lot of that is 
been uh, restricted. So when you've got a situation where private spending is going to fall so dramatically, then GDP is going to fall unless something else happens. And what's that something else? Well, that's government spending. That's the only other show in town when you've got uh, our export revenue falling uh, and private domestic spending, both investment and consumption spending, falling so dramatically in the case of household consumption. So in that context, we the government had to come in and increase its net spending, which it did by many billions of dollars. But my estimate is that it didn't do enough. It's about $100 billion short of where it needed to be to stop that 7% collapse. And the question... The, the re, why, so the question is, why didn't the government spend enough and, and offset the private spending? Well, you've got to go back to why the government was running the economy into the ground even before the pandemic, because they've, they've uh, obsessed with achieving fiscal surpluses. And that's driven their whole policy mentality. And progressively, as, as they've been running that sort of austerity, the economy's been slowing down. So even before the pandemic, pandemic, the economy was about half trend growth. Unemployment and underemployment were rising. Real wages were flat. So consumption spending was relying on household debt and, and households had given up trying to fund itself through household debt. They were already starting to save more. And that's why the government uh, penny pinched on the pandemic response. Yeah. Because they're scared to death that the the deficit's going to rise too much. But they're about $100 billion short, which is why the economy collapsed. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, you are absolutely not against the lockdowns. You're arguing more for more stimulus from the government. I'm absolutely not against the lockdowns. I think all of this talk in the last several days criticising the Victorian government, for example, is just absurd sort of talk. What, what, what do all these critics think we're going to do? We've, we, we've, got a, we've had a second wave of considerable proportions in Victoria and it's a killer. It's not just a little flu, it's not a cold, it's a killer. And it's a highly contagious virus. What do they expect the government to do in, in, given... given uh, that we value community health and individual health. And we don't even know the full extent of what this virus does to people. And there's all these examples now of people having now chronic illnesses, even after they've tested negative after having the virus. So I think the Victorian government's done the right thing in, in quite a severe lockdown. And I think the responsibility of the federal government was then to work out creative ways, given the scale of the lockdowns, work out creative ways to spend and fill that private spending gap with public spending and to therefore attenuate mostly the effects of those closures. Yeah. And I think, it's, I think the fact that the federal government's now criticising the Victorian government is a fact that they realise they haven't done enough and they want to deflect the blame. Yeah, it's it's one interesting point that I think has come up a lot with MMT is that there's a lot of focus on the fact that people think MMT argues for large uh, budget deficits. But when I first met up with you in, in Newcastle, um, when Tech and I came and visited you, 
one of the first things that stood out for me when I was introduced to MMT is that actually the opposite argument about the budget surplus is much more interesting because I think the way I understood is that you argue that a budget surplus actually detracts from economic activity because it's not a household. It doesn't go into a savings account. It detracts from economic activity. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing that people conclude about MMT falsely is that we're for big government, that it must mean huge deficits. Now, what I, what I always say is that you, the appropriate fiscal position, whether it's uh, a 2% deficit or a 4% deficit or a 2% surplus of GDP depends upon the context. You, you can't, there's, there's no way you can have a meaningful statement that, oh, a 2% surplus is better than a 2% deficit, which is better than a 10% deficit. Those sort of statements are ridiculous. And there's no such thing as, uh, you know, a, a, a bigger surplus or a smaller deficit is neither good nor bad. It all depends upon the context. Now, for some nations, say take Norway, for example. Norway has very strong external revenue coming in from North Sea energy resources, gas and oil. And so the external economy is bringing a lot of income into the economy. And it's a, and the, the government sector then has to make an evaluation. It wants to provide first-class public services and infrastructure, and it wants to be able to provide enough income growth to for the private sector to be able to save their desired amount and so in that context it realizes that if it ran deficits it would drive the economy too fast spending growth of spending would be too strong relative to the capacity of the domestic economy to match that spending with goods and services production and so they're in the position where they more or less have to run fiscal surpluses, spend less than they take out in taxation because to stop the economy overheating because they get so much external revenue. So that's the context. Now, you take a country like Australia where our external sector actually drains spending from the economy because we typically run external deficits. Our, our exports and our imports, uh, including net income transfers are typically negative. Now, in that context, with uh, uh, spending being drained from the economy through our external sector, the only way the private domestic sector, households and firms, can save overall is if the government runs a deficit. Because if the government tries to run a surplus in, and that deficit is there to fill the spending gap left by the withdrawal of, sp of spending by the private domestic sector in saving and the external sector draining spending. So the, the, that's, the, uh, that's another context. And so the way in which MMT thinks about the fiscal balance is to consider, well, what's the role of fiscal policy? The role of fiscal policy should be to ensure that spending in the economy is sufficient to maintain production at levels which will provide jobs for everybody. That's the role of fiscal policy. It's not to run a 2% deficit or a 4% deficit or a 2% surplus. What the final outcome will be depends upon 
how much spending is required to achieve that goal. Now, in terms of a surplus, if you think about a surplus, if the government is taking more out of the economy than it's putting in. Now, what does that mean? That means that they're, they're, deli they're deliberately by design undermining economic activity. Now, in the case of Norway, that's okay because, and desired because they're getting the stimulus from the external sector. But in an economy like Australia, if the government tries to run surpluses, then it has to squeeze domestic activity. It has to. And moreover, the squeezing a, a, a fiscal surplus squeezes private sector liquidity because where does the, the, the government spending less into the economy than it's taking out? So where does, where does that private deficit come from? Well, it has to come from the private sector liquidating prior savings, financial assets. It's the only way it can happen. And so a deficit, not only a surplus, sorry, not only with, uh, reduces economic activity, but it also destroys private sector wealth. And uh, that's why it's mostly undesirable, but that all depends upon the context. Yeah. And that's, that's often uh, the crux of the problem as well, is that the best answer is often it depends, but people don't like hearing that. No, that's right. I mean, it really does depend. You can't make bold statements uh, that a 2% deficit is worse than a 2% surplus, because it may be, it may not be. But what, what MMT emphasises is that obsessing about a particular figure is the wrong way to think about fiscal policy. Yep. And, and the other point to understand is that when governments obsess about a particular deficit or surplus target, they aren't capable of achieving it anyway within their own policy parameters because, in effect, you and I and all of us determine the fiscal outcome. And what, what I mean by that is that if our spending is strong, say the government says they're going to run a 2% surplus, take an, an example, uh, and we decide we actually want to save more than they're estimating we're saving. So we withdraw spending to try to save more. Well, economic activity will decline because we're not spending as much. And as economic activity declines, tax revenue declines, unemployment benefit payments increase. And so the government ends up with a deficit anyway because we've driven it to that. Yeah. The government's role is, is, is there to produce spending sufficient to provide full employment. And that's our, should be our, as well as other things like public infrastructure, good health, good education, whatever, to, uh, to provide a fabric for private sector investment. That's what we should be concerned with. Yeah. One other thing that um, I often hear investors being concerned with today in terms of the economy is that we are potentially etching towards a, a zombie economy where as a combination of government stimulus and um, very cheap lending, companies that probably don't have any viable business models anymore just keep on existing but never will make any profit. What does MMT say about that? There's an element of truth in the, and, and an obvious element that if uh, 
public money is is uh, doled out to private companies that are that are grossly inefficient, that don't invest in good technology, and they're just given free money. Well, then of course you're subsidising uh, their activity, and probably in the normal course of events, those companies won't survive unless they change their business practices and uh, uh, that's obvious but that's not a that's not a criticism of fiscal policy per se that's a criticism of the particular way in which governments of any particular flavor choose to help their mates for example and uh, you know I mean my view is that government policy should be aimed at maximising well-being for the greater part of society. And that includes providing uh, good public infrastructure, uh, good education systems, good training systems, good health systems, good regional development strategies, all of which provide the fabric in which private sector investment can be made and prosper and deliver better outcomes for everybody. Now, that's typically will, and certainly in the Australian case, will require fiscal deficits, continuous fiscal deficits of some size, depending upon the fluctuations in private spending. They probably typically would be about 2% of GDP on a, in a normal situation. And that's, that's appropriate behaviour, doling out money to your mates uh, and the sports rorts and all of these sort of activities, well, they're obvious misuse of the capacity. It's not a, that's, that's not to say that capacity is bad and shouldn't be used. It just says it should be used appropriately. Yeah. And one other thing that you focus a lot on as well is unemployment. And I was reading uh, one of your blog posts and I think you argued that if you agree or you accept the idea that uh, um, deficits can be stretched more than people in general assume they is, you can almost solve unemployment. Can you expand a bit on that? Well, there's no doubt. I mean, if you think, of, if you think about the Australian government, it can buy whatever is for sale in Australian dollars without question. Without question, it can do that. It's got the capacity to do that, the financial capacity to do that whenever it wants to, whenever it chooses to. Now, what's available for sale in Australian dollars includes all labour that can't find a job. That's for sale in Australian dollars by definition. People wanting jobs but other buyers not queuing up, private sector buyers not wanting that labour. So once you understand that, and that's factual and without question, then the obvious conclusion is that mass unemployment, like we have today, is a political choice. It's a choice by government not to use its financial capacity to provide jobs for all. Now, in the full employment period that followed the Second World War, and this was uh, laid out in the famous 1945 white paper on full employment, uh, which was sort of like a, a vision for nation building, it was the grand statement of the, the federal government on what its role was in building the nation after the war. And, you know, at that time, Australia wasn't a very wealthy nation at all. 
and that na those nation building activities were the key to building the public infrastructure the schooling the health and roads transport all of it and one aspect of that commitment was that the government was responsible for providing jobs for anybody who couldn't find one and so what is obvious uh, but resisted is the fact that governments could ensure that there's very low unemployment there's always going to be some unemployment the so-called frictional unemployment because people are moving between jobs and when the abs comes along and asks conducts the monthly labor force survey it's going to pick up some people that are moving between jobs that small amount of unemployment between 1945 and sort of the mid 70s it was always below two percent and we could easily achieve that again but there's no question that the government can uh, expand its role as an employer both in career public service increasing the scope and quality of public services so there's a big debate upon debate now about could have we responded to the pandemic uh, more effectively the answer is yes why because we've uh, run down our health systems through fiscal austerity so i think in uh, the future we're going to invest much more in career jobs in public in public health about time but there's also uh, aside from those career jobs there's also a, a realization historically that the reason we had true full employment in that post-war period was because the governments basically ran a buffer stock of jobs in the public sector you could always get a job in a number of different areas local government uh, uh, transport systems railways buses the big housing uh, and um, uh, road and type infrastructure departments anybody who didn't have a job could always find one and that's why unemployment was very low and i recommend that the australian government reintroduce that i now we now call it a job guarantee instead of maintaining this destructive unemployment which costs millions every day in lost income not to mention all of the other costs of unemployment the family costs and the cost to the mental and physical health system and what have you the government should basically provide an unconditional job offer to anybody who wants it at minimum wages which are socially inclusive unemployment disappears so healthcare is one area where they could invest in um, in the us often um, the green new deal is brought up where if government spends uh, enough on infrastructure in in sort of assisting the energy transition then that could drive a new level of economic growth and job creation do you think that something like that would be viable for australia well i, I call it a green transition to make it a not to get sucked into using american nomenclature the the new deal bit which is actually a misapplication of what the new deal was but whatever look at the moment there's there's incredible opportunities for governments to spend significant amounts which in the short term would not only alleviate a lot of the costs of the lockdowns etc but would also and the unemployment etc but also would position itself our economy and our society for the future challenges because while we're obsessing at the moment about the health crisis the climate crisis is still out there so 
you're right. I would, if I was the federal government now, I would be embarking on large-scale investments in renewables, in transition-type technologies, in speeding up the process of, uh, of carbon elimination, of uh, building jobs in, in, in those sort of sectors right across the, the ambit. So I, I've often argued in the Hunter area, the Newcastle area, which just up the valley has all of the coal mining, that, that those jobs are going to disappear. They're going to have to disappear. Why not create... And uh, the Hunter has a history of high-productivity manufacturing, steel and shipbuilding, etc. Why not use that culture and that capacity to build a renewable energy hub for Australia, to, to, uh, which could create jobs in manufacturing, uh, research and design, innovation, uh, sales and administration, uh, uh, technical support, and, you know, in other words, right across the occupational structure. That would create massive number of jobs and, uh, and, and create growth. And the other thing that we know is that uh, Australia has a, a deficit in social housing because of the run, the austerity over the last 20 years in social housing, a deficit in social housing. We, we, we've currently about 400,000 houses short of what we need. And so there's massive equity problems there. People on low income are being forced into, into the private rental market. The housing affordability is really low in Australia. And that just reduces everybody's prosperity and well-being. So why not... Uh, and we're worrying about the construction sector. So why not invest massively now, take the chance, take the opportunity and invest in social housing? And while you're at it, why not uh, retrofit existing, have programs to retrofit existing houses to be carbon, uh, low carbon housing? You know, there's, there's a lot of work being done around the world in how you can take an existing housing stock and retrofit it so it becomes green, in addition to building new green housing, particularly at the low income end, retrofit other people's houses, like our, our house, your house. And that would, that would be a massive step to the future, but also a significant response to the current crisis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Last question. MMT is a large body of work. Um, if you had to pick one idea that people should remember from it, what would it be? Uh, that unemployment is a policy choice. That's my obsession, my focus in my academic life and research life. Uh, the, 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 the biggest economic catastrophe is unemployment. It destroys people's well, short-term well-being. It undermines their... Uh, intergenerational prosperity. The research is very clear that children who grow up in jobless households inherit the disadvantages that the unemployment delivers to their parents and they end up having pretty unsatisfactory adult lives. And so for me, uh, unemployment not only results in massive income losses to the economy, 
It undermines family structures. It causes increased alcohol and substance abuse. Uh, it's, it, it increases uh, strains on the criminal justice system. It undermines self-esteem and it has those intergenerational disadvantages. So the, the, the one thing you learn from MMT that's a, that addresses that is that the resp it's not that the government can't afford to provide jobs for all, it's that it doesn't want to. And so the, the, for citizens who, under, who understand MMT and understand that, they are then emboldened in a democratic sense to ask their political representatives different types of questions. Because at the moment we're being, we're being forced to live in a fictional world created by mainstream economics where we don't ask the right questions, where we, we listen to politicians to say, oh, we can't afford that, they can't afford it, blah, blah. And uh, those fictions discourage us from answering the right questions. So an MMT understanding improves our dem democracy because we can ask better questions. And we would, on unemployment, we would then zero in on a politician and say, well, why do you want unemployment? You're choosing it, why? Who, what purpose does it serve? Well, we know what purpose it serves. It uh, forces uh, uh, wages, flattening of wages growth and redistributes national income to profits. Last week we learnt that for the first time in recorded history that the wage share in national income is below 50%. Go back 20 years, it was in the high 50%. Massive redistribution of income. So we're working harder, but earning less and profits are getting higher. How, do, how is that a just society? Yeah. If I might ask one follow-up question on that. The, I thought it was quite interesting where it says, oh, productivity has gone up because the number of hours have dropped and not dropped as fast, I think, as, as GDP. And I sort of try to link that back to working from home. Do you think there is some sort of distortionary effect where maybe the number of hours aren't properly counted? Uh, look, I think the data collection at the moment's in chaos and, the, the and that's not a criticism of the statistical authorities. Uh, if you read each of the national statistical authorities, the ABS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in America, uh, Office of National Statistics in the UK, the Cabinet Office in uh, Japan, all of the, these are statistical agencies I monitor every day. They've all got warnings now on their data releases that this is what's happened. We, we've done this sort of classification. So a lot of people who are working zero hours in America are being classified as employed. And if they were classified as unemployed, their situation would be much worse. And job in Australia, JobKeeper is... Uh, there's a lot of people on JobKeeper that aren't working, but they're classified as employed. And that's why the unemployment rate's only around 7.8% rather than 10 or 11%. And so you, there's massive distortions now in the data. It's not that the statistical, it's not a conspiracy theory that the stats agencies are misleading us. They just can't deal with the complexity of the pandemic. And so you have to, really be very circumspect. The productivity clearly rose 
because hours of work fell faster than uh, output. So yeah. statistically, it's going to rise. What does it mean? Not not very much. It just means that output fell very dramatically and hours fell worse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, around the edges, uh, uh, could have the hours been adjusted in a different way? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I don't think it's. I don't think we should be uh, obsessing about month to month figures. The trend is that the situation is very bad at the moment. Uh, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. That's what we need to know, and we need to know that the government's policy response is inadequate and should be larger. And the fact that they're now withdrawing vital income support mechanisms just tells you they're undermining growth yeah yeah well bill thank you very much for your time it's always good to speak to you thank you and i appreciate your time thank you thank you for listening to the i3 podcast for more information please visit www.i3-invest.com thank you very much Thank you.